Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I'm wondering a number of things. Firstly, Almost a year in, Stevie. I wonder, I'm from South Africa, but can we say that I'm also from San Diego? And, uh, you know, yeah. And while we speak about Pan-Africa, maybe San-Africa can be a thing. I don't know. And the second thing I'm thinking about is Hallmark wasn't a big feature of my life. And so I actually don't know if I've watched a Hallmark movie. I know the vibe and the general feeling. But I think this holiday, I'm going to use my children as a shameless way to indulge. And then finally, I woke up this morning and I was just struck once again at the enormity of the privilege that we join men and women across the globe, across generations, who have woken up again, resolved in their heart to follow after Jesus. What an honor. And I think sometimes in our routine and in our practice of coming and gathering together as a community, we can forget that we believe in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we are in this room together today and what an honor it is. I'm gonna invite you to stand as we read from the scriptures this morning. Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and behold your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name, I will lift my hands. Amen. You can find your seat. What amazing words penned by the psalmist I have seen you in the sanctuary. I will praise you as long as I live. Cultural anthropologist Michael Margoli argues that the stories we tell literally make the world. The scriptures tell one stunning story. It's the story of God which ultimately leads us to Jesus. The whole arc of scripture reveals that through him, God is restoring the union of heaven and earth, God and his people. Through Jesus, the saints are eternally clothed in righteousness. A corrupt and dying world is resurrected to life. Peace reigns and justice will flow like a river. You and I find ourselves in the waiting, caught between the fall of God's good creation and the renewal of all things. The reality of God's inbreaking kingdom here on earth and in the fullness of what is to come when Christ returns again. Genesis teaches us that God created a good world. In perfect union, God and man dwelt together in the garden. But in our sin, we desire to create a world apart from his rule. And in our rebellion, we pushed against the bounds of what he has determined is good. And what was unified in creation was separated in sin. Heaven and earth, God and his people. And so we have two domains. God's, marked by his perfect rule, and ours, marked by the rule of sin. 
But if you've read any of the scriptures, you know that this is not where a loving God leaves us. In his mercy, he promises to draw us out of the corruption of sin and restore us to himself. The biblical account is one of God pursuing again and again and again union with his people by entering into our condition. In the Old Testament, we learn that God steps into the human condition and he rests among his people. And he does this in a tangible way. His glory rested on the temple, the tabernacle built by Moses and then later on the temple that was built by Solomon. And in the center of that temple was the most holy of holies. It was the inner sanctuary, that place where the glory of God, where his presence dwelt. God was once again with his people. The power and the presence of God amidst his people. At this point, only priests had access to the presence of God, and they acted as mediators between the two domains, the goodness and the justice of God, and the sin and the corruption of his people. And this was done through a number of laws, including animal sacrifice which atoned for and allowed the Israelites to then enter into the temple. And while the priests represented all of Israel, it was not the divine ideal, which is God personally present with all people. This then brings us to the New Testament, where Jesus, who is the embodied radiance of the glory of God, enters and steps into the human condition to make his dwelling among us. The radiance of the glory of God reigns open the heavens and enters the human condition to dwell among us. The word used here in John chapter 1 for dwell means to live in a tent, referring to Moses' tabernacle. So Jesus quite literally is a tabernacle among us. He is the sanctuary of the glory of God, living and moving in human flesh. And so in a corrupt and sinful world, Jesus steps in. He enters the condition and he proclaims the arrival and the announcement of God's kingdom wherever he goes. But we read that Jesus is not only the temple, he is also the temple sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so through his death, his arms of love stretched upon the cross for all people, he once and for all atones for sin so that all people might freely have access to the presence of their loving Father. If you've read the Gospels, you know that before his death, he prepared his disciples and he tells them that it is better that he goes. He explains that after his death, resurrection, and ascension into glory, the advocate, the helper, the counselor would come, the Holy Spirit. And he tells them that it will actually be to their advantage because when the Spirit comes, the presence of God will be available and poured out on all people. The disciples listen to Jesus, and so once he ascends into glory, they gather in Jerusalem in the upper room, and they pray, and they wait. In Acts chapter 2, we read that it is as Christ said, and the Spirit descends. He's poured out on this group of ordinary men and women. And what we read is fascinating. We're told that tongues like flames rest on each one of them, and they themselves are filled with the glory of God's presence. Ordinary men and women filled with the power and presence and authority and goodness and glory of the Almighty. After the tabernacle was built, a fire representing the presence of God hovered over the most holy of holies. 
and the pillar of fire that rested over that inner sanctum now rested over the disciples themselves. The people of God are now themselves his dwelling place. And as the book of Acts continues and biblical history stretches on, we now see and experience that we are God's sanctuary. We, we house in our humanity, in our, ourselves, the glory of God living and moving amongst his people in human flesh with Jesus at the center of all things. Like Christ himself in a sinful and corrupt world, we now are sent commissioned to proclaim and announce the arrival of God's good kingdom wherever we go. Isn't that amazing? I think sometimes we move on from this too quickly. The glory of the radiance of the Almighty God is housed in the human heart. We are living, moving sanctuaries that host the presence of God. And like our Savior, we are commissioned to say, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? Like church, the spirit of God dwells within you. So God's holy temple, his dwelling place, is now the people of God. Those who have found their identity in Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God who removed once and for all the sting of Satan, sin, and death. Through Jesus Christ, sinners become sanctuaries. God's glory house in our hearts, living, moving sanctuaries filled with his presence, empowered to establish, like we pray, his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So I want to ask us then, how do we bring this theological reality to bear on all of our life? If this is the trajectory of scripture, the single story of God culminating in the person of Jesus Christ, how do we bring this to bear in the reality of our ordinary lives? Amidst our frustrations and disappointments, our anxieties and concerns, amidst our longings, our hopes and expectations, how do you and I live as breathing sanctuaries, housing the presence and power of the Almighty? I believe that God extends an invitation to us that we embody the practices of Jesus that shape and sustain our conviction. In many ways, these practices are like opening the doors to the sanctuary. They locate us in the love of God and they rhythmically, day in and day out as we practice them, orient us once again in his presence. The spiritual practices are a very functional, embodied way of lifting our hearts lifting our eyes that like the psalmist, we might see him and meet him in his dwelling place and praise him. The practices are a means of freely receiving the grace of God. They simply position us before him. They place us before him so that God might work in our hearts and transform us ever increasingly into the image of the Son into wholeness in Jesus Christ. And so today, our invitation to enter the sanctuary, the doors that we will open to meet him in the dwelling place where he rests and abides and dwells is through silence and solitude. So I want to speak about this invitation, an invitation to enter the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God, the human heart through silence and solitude. Very practically, what is solitude and what is silence? Well, in solitude, we purposefully abstain from interaction with others. We deny ourselves all that comes from constant and conscious interaction with those around us, 
and we close ourselves away. You can close yourself away in your home, you can close yourself away in a park, you can close yourself away in nature. And in solitude, we choose to be alone and experience the very real sense of isolation from others. In silence, we also close ourselves off from sound, like noise, music, and words. And many argue that this is where silence goes and extends beyond solitude, and that without solitude, without silence, solitude has very little effect. So in many ways, solitude and silence go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. And I had to laugh when I wrote this out because in, on, the, on the page, it seems so rudimentary. It seems so simple and so easy and so clear. And yet, if you have ever practiced solitude and silence, you know that it's anything but simple and rudimentary and clear. The experience of solitude and silence is nuanced and layered and complex. What is important is for solitude and silence to exist as embodied practices that actually place us and locate us before God in the sanctuary where he dwells, they must extend and move beyond mere detachment into attachment. See, this is what differentiates them as Christian spiritual practices rather than Eastern forms of meditation or even wellness spirituality, where detachment is in and of itself the end goal. For the Christian, on the other hand, who's desiring to locate themselves in the reality of the divine, detachment is simply the means by which we experience the ultimate goal. Detachment is only the means by which we remember and place ourselves before the goal himself, who is God. Through solitude and silence, we simply experience the reality that we share union with the Almighty, intimacy with the Father. So solitude and silence for as a Christian spiritual practice moves beyond simple detachment into attachment with God himself. Thomas Merton says that this is not a psychological trick but a theological grace. We detach from the world in order to have a richer attachment to the Father. We detach and abstain from the world in order to be present in a more meaningful way to the Son. And we close ourselves off from the world in order to open ourselves, to open our hearts to the Spirit. Paul Tripp explains that change which ignores the heart will seldom transform the life. For while it may seem like the real thing, it will prove temporary and cosmetic. And this is what differentiates the practices that God invites us into. They are concerned with the heart. It is the loving Father, the living God, entering into our hearts, entering once again the human condition to, by his grace, work upon us that we might be moved from one degree to the next into wholeness and health in Jesus Christ. In particular, through silence and solitude, Richard Foster says that we create the emotional and the spiritual space which allows Christ to construct the inner sanctuary of the heart. Like the psalmist teaches us, we learn God is the strength of my heart and it is good to be near God. I think sometimes we forget that. We forget that God is the strength of our heart. We believe it is everything else except him. We believe it is ourselves. We believe it is economic systems. We believe it is our family of origin. But no, at the end of the day, there is one who is the strength of our heart. And it is good for us to be near to him. The sanctuary that we enter through practices like solitude and silence is ultimately a place of encounter. So if we are in Christ, the Spirit of God now dwells in our hearts and he transforms us into his sanctuary. 
where we are invited to sit and to meet with him. In solitude and silence, we detach from the world and we descend into our heart with the mind to encounter the living God. Which means, friends, that when we enter solitude and silence, we are anything but alone. In fact, Henry Nouwen says solitude is the furnace of transformation. It's in the intimacy of the sanctuary, in the intimacy of the place where God rests, that we meet with him. And at the altar of our worship, he shapes and forms and fashions us into the image of Christ. Seamus Heaney, the Irish poet, wrote a poem called The Forge, and he speaks about this door into the dark that the blacksmith enters, and it's at that, that altar where the anvil is placed that he extends iron, and he beats it out, and he shapes it, and he molds it, and then he sends it out to make music in the world. And that is the human heart, the place where God works and extends and beats raw iron out to shape it and mold it and send it out in the world to glorify him. When we practice solitude and silence, what we will find is that three things happen. Firstly, we encounter ourselves, we encounter our enemies, and finally we encounter the Lord. I want to look at each one of these in a little bit of detail today. We encounter ourselves. Henry Nouwen warns, without solitude, we remain victims of our society and we continue to be entangled with the illusions of the false self. When we enter into solitude and silence, we realize very quickly that our scaffolding is removed. Without friends to talk to, family to care for, deadlines to meet, phones to check, our false trust structures, structures are quickly dismantled. And that can feel vulnerable. It can feel exposing. And so we enter into a strange kind of freedom, kind of freedom that perhaps we have forgotten and we are not quite used to anymore. It is freedom from the ingrained rhythms of thinking, feeling, and acting in a world that is set against the kingdom of God. And in many ways, when we go into the space, it can feel like some kind of painful detox for us as we begin to notice and name all the emotions that suddenly have the space and opportunity to rise to the surface of our hearts. Those emotions and experiences and feelings that perhaps we have avoided through distraction. And so as we encounter ourselves in the sanctuary and the meeting place with God, it can feel vulnerable. It can feel like we are exposed. Thomas Merton says that solitude actually is for this end. It serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial, our superficial securities. Exposed before God, like the psalmist, we can then invite him to lovingly search our hearts, to know our hearts, to test our anxious thoughts, to see if there is any offensive way in us so that he can lead us into his way that is everlasting. This is why Dallas Willard says that we only survive solitude if we cling to Christ, it's such a vulnerable, exposing, confronting reality that we are only sure to survive when we cling to him, to the one who sees us and knows us and loves us and has pursued us and called us his own. Like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we can hold all of ourselves before God and we can meet with him there. Through vulnerability, in the quiet, with God, he forms us into greater Christ-likeness. In that place, we receive his wisdom and we receive again his perspective of life, which oftentimes feels frustratingly mundane. You know, we can read about it in the scriptures. We can read that our minds are renewed in Christ. We can read these incredible promises of what life is like in union with God. And then we feel like there's this gap between what we read and what we experience. And it's frustrating because we think, but I thought it would be more, but it's practical and mundane. 
And it kind of feels like, eh. But Richard Foster says that it's in our ordinary human problems that God sends us into an ordinary world with a greater perspective and balance. And from that place, like Christ himself who entered in an ordinary human world, we can minister the divine peace and justice of God. As Henry Nouwen put it, solitude is not a private therapeutic place. Rather, it's a place of conversion. It's a place where the old self dies and the new self is born. It's in the sanctuary of God's grace that we confront our sin, that we expose the wounds of our hearts. We let go of and relinquish our fear and we acknowledge our true self. Galatians 2.20 reads, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. He has made us his resting place. In solitude and silence before an almighty God, we die. We die to the things that are killing us only to be raised in the life of Christ. In silence and solitude, when we are vulnerable enough and brave enough to hold ourselves before God, we die to the things that are killing us to be raised to his life in the one who heals us and sets us free. Through his resurrection life, we experience the promise of Galatians chapter 5 that it is for freedom that Christ has indeed already set us free. It's in the sanctuary of the heart that the old self dies and the new self is born. Henry Nouwen says that with a single-minded attention and a single-minded focus to Christ, we come to realize that this is true, that it is not we who live, but Christ who lives in us, that he is our true selves. When we descend into the sanctuary of the heart, we see that this is true. We see the reality. We cling to the promise, not me, but Christ. And what is our response? We praise him. How can we not? We glorify him, not me, but Christ in me. Number two, we encounter our enemies. Each year, the school that I worked for in South Africa would send approximately 100 15-year-old girls into the mountains. For three weeks, they would travel in small groups while carrying everything they needed for those three weeks to survive on their backs. With no outside contact except for three posted letters, these young girls hiked, biked, and canoed across the mountains of KwaZulu-Natal. It was amazing. They had a, each girl would pack an ice cream tub, and this ice cream tub was their bath, it was where they washed their dishes, it was where they stored their things, and it was also where they washed their clothes. It was an amazing experience. For some of you, it sounds like heaven on earth. For others, it's something you'd rather not do. But this journey was designed so that they could significantly and potently detach from the reality of the, the ordinary rhythms and comforts of their lives in order to take an important inner journey at a time that's critical in their life. It's a journey through the heart. Every morning, that three-week journey will begin with one hour of silence and solitude. But halfway through the three weeks, each group would rotate into 24 hours of solitude and silence. Each girl would pitch a tent in the mountains away from her friends, and there she would be alone with herself, with her thoughts, and present before God. As their chaplain, I had the immense privilege of not only leading and guiding them into this 24 hours of silence, but I also had the privilege of going and meeting and speaking to each one of them. At the end of five days, after speaking to about 100 girls in quite an intense context, I felt like I needed a three-week retreat of silence and solitude. But you know that every time I did this, after seeing hundreds of girls enter and exit silence of solitude, I saw that two things were always true. 
we all have an enemy to confront. And our enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil will expose emotionally loaded reasons that will draw us away from the quiet place of encounter with God. There will always be an emotionally loaded reason why we should not go there. But the second thing I always saw is that the wrestle is worth it. The wrestle is worth it. Researchers at the University of Virginia conducted a fascinating study. They found that most people would choose to inflict harm voluntarily on themselves rather than sit in 15 minutes of silence. How telling of the human condition. John Mark Comer says it like this. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus enters the desert to fight, not to flee, to engage, not to escape, to win victory, not to give up. When we distance ourselves from the world, and when we see the ways that we have been enslaved by the world, the Spirit of God is given space to well up within us that we might confront and wrestle with our enemies, claiming for ourselves the victory we have already been given, the freedom we have already received in Christ Jesus. In solitude, Domakoma writes, we learn to fight, by, by, fight the lies by listening carefully for God's voice in Scripture. It may be hard at first, but long term, over the course and trajectory of a lifetime, it yields divine freedom. We fight the lies by listening carefully to God's voice. And how often do we hear his voice? It's in the whisper. And when there is a whisper, we incline our ear. We lean in. And what do we find in the whisper? Intimacy, proximity, closeness, union, communion in the truest sense. This frames, yields a divine freedom. Psychiatrist Cole Jung remarked that Harry is not of the devil, it is the devil. The enemy thrives in our noise and hurry and oversaturated reality. I lived with a girl who had a very full schedule and she always used to be in her room and she'd be singing to herself as she'd get ready and she'd sing, hurry, 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 rush, rush, rush. And that is how we live, oversaturated. As Richard Foster explains, if he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. For the enemy to be exposed, we must enter the quiet place of solitude and silence in the presence of God. The little prince reminds us that what makes the desert beautiful is that somewhere it hides a well. Psalm 63 lays it out for us that we are indeed a thirsty people. We roam a dry and a parched land looking for a well. When we meet with God in the sanctuary, in the dwelling place of our hearts and behold his glory like the woman Christ encountered at the well, we hear his word, which is, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And like that woman, when we see him, when we encounter him in the sanctuary, in the quiet place, confronted by the reality of who we are, confronted by the reality of our enemy, we will see him. We will see his glory. And like her, our testimony will be praise him. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He has the final word. He is victorious. Finally, we encounter the Lord himself. In the digital age, it is quite possible for us to live all of our lives without ever truly being alone, either to ourselves or present to God. Ruth Haley Barton explains that solitude and silence 
then is an invitation to enter more deeply into the intimacy of relationship with the one who waits just outside of the noise and the busyness of our lives. It is an invitation to communication and communion with the one who is always present, even when our awareness has been dulled by distraction. It's growing into what Thomas Akempis calls a familiar friendship with Jesus. Richard Foster says it's sinking down into the light and life of Christ and becoming comfortable in that posture. Jesus called this abiding, abiding in the sanctuary of his love. Abide in me. Abide in me are his words to us. Luke chapter 5, 16 says that Jesus often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Solitude and silence become our incarnated, our animated, our embodied, enlivened, yes, Lord, we will come with you. We will follow after you. In Matthew chapter 11, 28, Jesus invites us, come away with me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. In solitude and silence, we really come to rest in our union with God. It is the great exhale into the loving arms of an ever-present Father. We rest in the sanctuary amidst the reality of our ordinary lives, filled with disappointment and joy, pain and peace. We rest, we exhale, we lean the full weight of who we are on him. And here we not only love him, but we are loved by him. For the Desert Fathers, Henry Nouwen explains that solitude was not so much about being alone, but being alone with God. They did not think of silence so much as not speaking, but listening to God. And this, friends, is ultimately what it means to live a life of unceasing prayer. It is what it means to live a life of praying always. It's to live from the inner sanctum of the heart, the sanctuary of the heart, the place where God dwells. It is to live and breathe and have your being from that place, always, ever aware of the presence of your Father with you. It's to descend with the mind into the heart and there to stand before the face of the Lord, ever present, all seeing within you. So we enter the quiet to encounter the Lord and set him ever before our minds. From the wooden pews of my school chapel, from the age of seven to 17, I would, I would sing these words. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. This is the invitation of solitude and silence to see the friend that we have in Jesus and to take the full spectrum of our human experience, beautiful and painful, glorious and ugly, and to hold it before him, knowing he knows it all and he loves us. When we do this, when we take all of ourselves and hold it tenderly before God, we meet with him. We see him in the sanctuary of our hearts and we glorify him because it's true. What a friend we have in Jesus. Can we find a friend so faithful? Indeed, his love, like Psalm 63 tells us, is better than life. 
I want to be very honest for a moment about solitude and silence. The scope of emotions that we bring to a set of practices like this is broad. The, the breadth of what we can experience before God in solitude and silence is enormous. And like I said, it's complex and it's layered and it's vulnerable and it's exposing and it can be painful and it can be freeing. You know, as an only child and introverted by nature, when I enter into solitude, in so many ways, I feel like I'm entering into a familiar comfort. It's the freedom of stepping into my childhood garden and running down that grassy hill, knowing my friend is with me. But other times, I've felt the tap of God on my shoulder saying to, to me, Caitlin, come away with me. And I've hidden from silence and solitude because I know that in that place, the things that I have covered myself with will fall away. And sometimes it's felt like that will be too painful for me. Or it will be too hard to face what's going on in my heart. And so I have also hidden. Both experiences are true. And both experiences are okay. And both can be held with confidence and humility, boldness before the Lord. And he is in both experiences. He's in them both to no lesser degree. And so God invites us ultimately, like the saints of history, to hold our lives before him, whether it's, it's a joyful relinquishment or a painful relinquishment, we hold our lives before him and we relinquish control. And we simply hold ourselves in the light of his love, present to an ever-present God. We stop trying to do being with God, and we just sit in the sanctuary without agenda, in the discomfort of not knowing what will surface in our own hearts, what will come up for us, and even what will come up for God. But what we do do as well is in that space and in that place, we hold to the words of Psalm 18 that promises God is a shield for all who take refuge in him. Just like we worshiped this morning, he is a shield for everyone who takes refuge in him. So to practice solitude and silence, where do you start? Well, start small with what you have. Look at your schedule and plan for ways that you can incorporate time alone with God. And the truth is, with so much in life, unless we actually plan for it, it doesn't happen. So be bold enough to schedule it in. Schedule in time in the quiet with your father, time to enter the sanctuary. Be kind to yourself. Know the stage of the life that you are in. And then draw on the resources of this community where God has placed you. Because together, we can facilitate more spaces of encounter for one another. Maybe it means you, you relieve your friend of their responsibilities, even if it's for an hour. Or maybe it means just sharing your experience, blow wind into the sails of your friend's hearts that they might have courage to try. Share your experiences because together we can glean and grow and learn as we practice solitude and silence daily, weekly, monthly, annually. And if you would like a practical starting point, I suggest going and having a look at Practicing the Way's Companion Guide to Solitude. I think it's practicingtheway.org. It is so helpful. There are very tangible on-ramps to these two practices, and they take you through these three encounters that we have in this space, the sanctuary that we have when we enter the heart. So the whole story of Scripture is that through Jesus, we see the renewal of all things, the reunion of God and his people, heaven and earth. And through Jesus, we see that ordinary men and women with ordinary lives like us become these sanctuaries that host and house the glory of God. We host and house the presence of God. We are filled and empowered by his spirit to establish his kingdom here on earth. And so today I want to ask, if the stories we tell literally make the world, will we live from the story? Will we live from the theological reality of the sanctuary that is the human heart? And will we join Jesus 
as he remakes the world? Will we be a people that live from the sanctuary? By setting up residence in our heart, God invites us to become the type of people that are the answer to the great longing of the world. By ministering the power and the presence of God to his people, God invites you and me to be ministers of the Lord, to move and have our being as these portable sanctuaries that carry and host the presence of God, the inbreaking rule of God, the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Richard Foster says that our call, our charge is to be a portable sanctuary that is brought into and comes to bear on all that we do. And we can do that when we live from that place, when we frequently and rhythmically enter solitude and quiet with God. And so while the purpose of solitude and silence is deeply personal, it results in a life that is missional. We retreat from the world and it results in us lovingly serving the world as those who carry and minister the glory of God to the places we inhabit in our ordinary lives. Isn't that remarkable? We host the presence of God and we can minister him to a world that is crying out for the one who is and was and will always be. I'd love to invite the worship team up as we close. You know, this week I was thinking a lot about the Psalms. Theologians call the Psalms a literary sanctuary Encompassed in the pages of the Psalms are all the utterances of the human heart. It is the vast experience of what it means to be human. It is the vast experience of our humanity placed before God. The pages of the Psalms are totally all-encompassing, and it delves into the depths of what it means to be human. It exposes for us on paper for us to see plainly our humanity wrapped up in thanksgiving and lament. It's the cry of our heart, hey, God, remember what you have promised in the simultaneous declaration that you have indeed remembered what you have promised. And do you know how that literary sanctuary ends? The, the full containment of what it means to be human. It ends like this, Psalm 150, verse 6, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Friends, you and I are invited to delve into the depths of our heart through silence and solitude to encounter the Lord that no matter what we experience, that vast array of our humanity, our joy and pain and sorrow and grief and lament and thanksgiving and confidence and uncertainty at the end of our life and through it all, the final utterance of our heart will be praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. And so I would say to you, would you receive the invitation to encounter the living God in a place of solitude and silence? Solitude and silence invites us to experience the depths of our humanity, not on our own, but with God. To enter the place where he dwells, that our refrain would echo the Psalms, let everything have breath. Praise the Lord. We see him in the sanctuary. And what happens? We praise him. To close, I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to do something a little bit different. And it might feel a little bit awkward and uncomfortable. That's okay. And if there's a little baby who cries or a creaking chair, that's fine. But in a world with social media, we are all publishers and we all have our say. And there are many words and there is much noise and there is a whole bunch of muchness. Rush, 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 hurry, hurry, hurry going on around us. I wondered what it would be like for us to stand shoulder to shoulder in silence to allow God to have the final word in our hearts today. And so we're going to stand in a little bit of an extended time of silence. We're going to open our hearts to the Spirit of God who is within us, who is dwelling in our midst, and allow Him to minister to us.
And we're going to sit in that sanctuary for a little bit. And then to close, we are going to close like the Psalms do. Because once our, the eyes of our heart have entered the sanctuary and seen him, we have got to praise him. We have got to glorify him. Our declaration has got to be let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And so if you're comfortable, you can extend your hands before your loving Father, you can close your eyes, you can bow your head. Just consciously posture yourself before God and let us stand in silence, present to him. Closing words of Psalms, the literary sanctuary housing the human heart, housing the human experience. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with the resounding cymbals. Let everything, let every living thing, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise him. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.